It's a chilly and windy Sunday morning in Bisbee, Arizona. As we drive into town coming from Tucson, massive pits of abandoned copper mines dug 700 feet deep come into view. We pull over by the side of Evergreen Cemetery on Old Douglas Road on the outskirts of town. Mike Anderson, a local historian, steps out of his car to greet us. We're in Bisbee digging into the history of one of the most important copper mining towns in the 20th century. A town split by racial divides and controlled by a company that profited during a deadly pandemic in the United States. Hello, I'm Clara Migoya. Welcome to Of Power and Pandemics, a podcast about the Arizona-Sonora borderlands during the 1918 pandemic. This podcast is produced by University of Arizona School of Journalism students. This is Bisbee 1918. Mike Anderson has lived in Bisbee for over 30 years, and he says he's been doing historical research since he was 12. Over the years, he's become the go-to guy if you want to learn anything about Bisbee or the infamous 1917 deportation. Something we'll get to later in this episode. Anderson digs into all kinds of subjects, from the Cochise County Sheriff Department and mining company power, to baseball parks and vaudeville entertainment. We can't really see much of his face behind the sports cap, foggy glasses, and a disposable face mask he's wearing. We zigzag across the narrow dirt paths of the cemetery as he points at the graves of people who passed away during the pandemic. Patches of scrubby grass line the headstones and a long row of cypresses stand in the distance. Evergreen is sectioned by religious affiliation, as are many other cemeteries, and it is also divided along ethnic and racial lines. There was an Anglo section and a general section where most immigrants are buried. To understand how miners lived through the 1918 pandemic and why those divisions mattered, we have to look at what the mining industry was like back in those days. The year before the pandemic hit, the United States entered its first year in World War I. The country became invested not only in shipping millions of men to war, but also in producing ammunition. Copper mining and refining became critical for the war effort. It was used in bullet cartridges, shell casings, telegraphs, and other types of weapons production. It also meant big profits. The same year the first batch of U.S. troops sailed to French soil, the price of copper tripled from 11 cents per pound to 36. Copper became one of the most important wartime industries, and companies like Phelps Dodge in Bisbee thrived. Phelps Dodge was one of the wealthiest and most powerful companies in America, and it was, it was the major producer and operator here. Miners and their work were considered essential, so much that many of them were relieved from the draft. Yet, while companies increased their profits, working conditions remained harsh. Strikes and union-led demands erupted throughout Arizona and Montana, the largest copper-producing states at the time. When the flu pandemic rolled in, nothing had changed. Except, a virus added to the dangers of mining work. 
they had to go down the shafts packed into extremely close quarters. Despite their fears of catching the virus or being injured, miners had little chance but to work. Arizona's economy was taking off. As a state, it was only five years old, but mining prospectors had been running operations there since 1880. The U.S. mining laws favored them, allowing companies to claim rich ore deposits for $5 an acre without paying royalties. So by the time the war came, Phelps Dodge had sized up its operations. When the so-called Spanish flu hit in 1918, the supply of refined copper in Arizona soared to more than 388,000 tons, almost 10% more than the year before. An annual report from the state mining inspector showed that more than three out of every four dollars in mineral dividends came from Phelps Dodge. You hear about the American West and how it's how it's uh, described: the rugged individualists, the frontiersmen that tamed the West, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's pretty much nonsense. It was capitalism that tamed the West. Mining revenue was not produced in a vacuum. With investors came thousands of workers. 1870s, 1880s on until the 1920s, um, the floodgates opened and millions and millions and millions of immigrants came to the United States. So the mining towns, steel towns, lumber, lumber towns, coal towns, all those towns that required lots and lots of, of skilled labor, they were getting immigrants to do the, the work. So Bisbee in 1917 was 40% immigrant. Today, Bisbee is a picturesque lefty town of barely 5,000. It looks very different from its early years. To understand more about the time period and the social and political conditions when the pandemic hit, we talked to historian Catherine Benton Cohen. I am a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of two books. Uh, The first is the relevant one here, uh, Borderline Americans, Racial Division and Labor War in the Arizona Borderlands. It was published by Harvard University Press in 2009. And I'm also an Arizona native. Benton Cohen has done extensive research on Bisbee's early years and the power behind Phelps Dutch Company. We swimmed with her on an early November morning and she greeted us from her home office. She let us know that she was on a tight schedule but managed to find the time in between meetings to talk with us. Bisbee was founded in 1880 as a copper mining town that eventually attracted people in the early 20th century from dozens of countries, maybe more, maybe something like three dozen. Even today in Bisbee, if you walk up Opera Drive, which runs high above Brewery Gulch, you can find um, or smell wild fennel, that is the remains of the fennel that Italian immigrants grew in the early 20th centuries. There were also people from Finland, England, Ireland, Mexico, China, Serbia. By 1916, Bisbee had reached the population of 25,000 people. It was the third largest city in Arizona. But despite the cosmopolitan composition of the town, segregation and racial discriminatory wage systems drew hard lines between workers. Phelps Dodge adopted the ideology of the original prospectors in Bisbee of the white man's camp. And Bisbee was known as what's called a white man's camp till at least 1929. I found examples of it being publicly advertised that way as late as 1929. What this meant in Bisbee was that not all workers were worth the same in the eyes of the company. 
there was a dual wage system that defined who worked in what capacity and how much their labor was worth. At the Copper Queen mine, Mexicans were prohibited from going underground into the shafts. Although more dangerous, it was also better paid. They earned half of what their Anglo counterparts made and lived on the outskirts of town, in places with names like Chihuahua Hill in Tintown. The scavenged materials of the ramshackles gave the settlement its name. You can actually take the old sewer maps, which you can get at the town of Bisbee, and look at the original sewer maps and see that they stop short of all of the Mexican neighborhoods. Okay, You can do the same with electric service. You can look at the prices for individual water service versus business water service. When it came to the deadliest health emergency of the century, the pandemic of 1918, segregation mattered too. Many doctors and nurses were also drafted, so towns were left in a dire situation and residents received unequal medical care. Here's Mike Anderson again. The medical system here was overwhelmed. And my suspicion is that those doctors who were here, their priority would have been to take care of the upper class. That's the way it works. Money talks. It still does. It wasn't only that money dictated who could afford care. Remember that Phelps Dodge was one of the most powerful actors in Arizona at the time. They owned the mines, the smelters, housing stores, the railroad, hotels, libraries, the school board, and the media. Yeah, the Disney Daily Review, yeah, and, the Douglas, and the Douglas Daily Dispatch, and the Arizona Daily Star. They even owned Copper Queen Hospital. The presence of private capital in the health system brought world-class care, but it also furthered segregation. There were some real positives to um, public health in company towns um, in the same way that lots of autocratic environments do provide certain kinds of services, right? And so there were company hospitals, right? And actually one of the things that the miners again protested in 1917 in their strike was that the hospital charges, the mandatory fees that they were, that they had taken out of their wages were very high. The 1917 strike that Benton Cohen is talking about is the same one that led to one of the darkest moments in the history of Bisbee. Demanding equal wages and better work conditions, many miners joined the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, one of the most radical unions in the United States. Phelps Dodge wanted the union and strikers out, and so it brought its allies to help. Cochise County Sheriff deputized over a thousand local residents and those, the sheriff and his deputies who were mostly lay people, um, rounded up over 1200 strikers or suspected supporters uh, in the morning of July 12, 1917, uh, rounded them up at gunpoint and loaded them onto 23 company owned railroad boxcars that were sent into the middle of New Mexico. I'm on the mining company side on that one. Are you going to feel that you did something wrong, or your father or grandfather did something? Uh, no, they were right. That is the sound of Bisbee 17, a film about the town's labor strike and the Bisbee deportation that was reenacted by the current town residents. Benton Cohen was a historical advisor for the film, 
So was Mike Anderson, and you can see him as a cast member playing the role of an organizer. The last mine shut down in 1975. It was catastrophic. A mining town without a mine is usually... In a speech to the Senate in 1919, Arizona Governor Wiley Paul Hunt condemned the acts of this, quote, mob of copper company thugs and ruffian deporters, men who acted to vent a personal prejudice under the guise of patriotism, end of quote. He estimated that in the years following the war, Phelps Dodge made $14.5 million above its own average. The company didn't concede to workers' demands. During the first months of the pandemic, copper mines kept running. Mines and their workers were essential in the war economy. For that reason, there was, there was no effort made at all to, to stop production here. It had a horrible impact on... Um, the mines, because what happened was people got sick, they, mm -hmm. they couldn't come to work, other people got scared. Then in November 1918, the price of copper fell due to the armistice. The company lowered daily wages by 75 cents. It's hard to overstate the crisis that collided. Labor conditions were worsening and the flu pandemic was taking a toll on communities. At a time when the country was shaking by war and disease, companies grew their profits at the expense of workers. Miners worked more than eight-hour shifts. There was no sick leave, no races, no compensation in case of injury or death. Workers feared not only explosions and cave-ins, but also respiratory illnesses, now worsened by the pandemic. It's tuberculosis is what basically what uh, they were uh, afraid of. But they called it the black lung disease because it would spread to their families. And that's very contagious. So I don't know if what was killing the people, and they kept referring to it as the black lung disease, or if it was the Spanish flu. This is Nina Womack-Rangel, a family historian. Womack-Rangel heard about these concerns from Beatriz Carol May Womack, a late relative who was six years old during the 1918 pandemic. I met Ancestry.com a platform used by genealogists and amateur historians to build family trees and dig in archives. Her name came up as one of the living relatives of a man who, during the years of the deportation and the pandemic, had his feet in two worlds, William Blackburn. It was Mike Anderson who first pointed this out to me that windy day when we were at Evergreen Cemetery. Back, there's one of the IWW members. See that, that like a cylinder? On top of a pedestal right there, that's William Blackburn. Blackburn was the organizer of the most radical labor union in the country, and he was also deported in 1917, along with other 1,100 men or so. This is something that was new to Wumakrangel. You know, I was thinking back, uh, I've been thinking about this whole ancestry situation with the Blackburns, and I did not know that William, the son of the superintendent of the mines, had got deported. That's right. William Blackburn was also the son of the Copper King Mine superintendent, Charles W. Blackburn. Charles Blackburn married Margarita Escalante, who came from a wealthy Spanish family in Mexico, and the family lived up in Naco Road in Chihuahua Hill. Despite being regarded as half Anglo, half Mexican, the family was prominent. William's parents even threw gramophone parties and appeared frequently in company-owned newspapers. 
newspaper articles. Holy smokes. You know, um, her um, Nina's, uh, you know, great grandfather um, Alejandro went to pay his taxes in Tombstone and it was in the newspaper. (laughs) So Charles Blackburn and his family were in their buggy and he had three of his beautiful children and they were just going across town. I don't know if they were feeling space or if it was just things to know. And this is Edwina Kirsten. She's related to Womack Rangel on their mother's side. She's also a dedicated family historian and a persistent researcher who tracked down the Womacks and found that they were related. I sent a letter to Nina's parents and I said, you don't know me, but I think we're related because I think that my great-grandfather is cousins with your great-grandmother. And, and so we put our heads together and we found so much wonderful things and, and it was just lovely. Womack Rangel and her are now friends and research colleagues, so to speak. I know, I'm random. but um, you know, So William Blackburn was born into a family that made appearances in the company newspaper. But he became a key actor in the fight for workers' rights after he testified in court against the Beesby deportation. And maybe living there for, you know, 30, 40 years, you see the injustices of what is going on in the mines and you're part of that culture and it touches you. Blackburn's story represents a shifting moment in the dynamics of ethnicity, race, and class in Bisbee. Blackburn, likely due to his family connections, was allowed to return to Bisbee. But others weren't as lucky. After fathers, brothers, and husbands were kidnapped and dumped into the New Mexican desert, most families had to follow. The Copper Queen Mining Company just hired new folks. The mine laborers of Bisbee, essential workers of the time, were replaceable. The deportation also sent a message to non-white and immigrant workers. Here is Catherine Benton-Cohen. The upshot was that 90% of those removed were immigrants. Most never came back. They came from at least 34 countries. And so by the time the flu arrives in the Arizona borderlands, there had been a real disruption of race relations and um, a re- and statement of corporate dominance in the region. Even Dr. Bledsoe, Bisbee's chief surgeon, was involved in the deportation. Blackburn testified against him, and witnesses describe him as carrying a crack rifle, a six-shooter, a belt of pistol cartridges, and more. But the charges against him and other vigilantes were dropped soon after. A newspaper clip of the Bisbee Daily Review describes the 64 men accused of kidnapping as married men with family, all taxpayers. Only one year after the pandemic and two years after the deportation, Arizona lawmakers approved the Workmen's Act, which included basic protections for minors against job injuries and financial compensations for families in case of their death. The only way that eight-hour days came about, the only way that sick time came about, the only way that paid vacations came about, the only way that equal treatment of people came about was working people standing up and being willing to put their lives in the line. As we walked through the cemetery with Anderson that chilly Sunday morning, we saw distinct patches in the horizon of graves. Anderson tells us the story of Serb immigrants who got deported and came back to live silently among vigilantes, and those who lost their family members to the hands of the flu. And this is a general section in here. We're headed over to that 
um, traffic sign over there. As we struggled to find records of those workers who lived through a pandemic at a time where dissent was not only silenced but persecuted, we are reminded that history is also told by what is not found on the records. Unmarked graves in the first section of Evergreen Cemetery tell us much less about those whose names never appeared in the newspapers. The immigrants who, in a time of war and pandemics, were first impacted by the company's power structure and then by disease. This was Bisbee 1918, of Power and Pandemics. Thank you to Celeste González de Bustamante and Janine Relly from the University of Arizona School of Journalism. To Veronica Reyes Escudero from the University of Arizona Library Special Collections, Jeff Oliver, and Catherine Morrissey for her insight on historical voids. Many thanks to Mike Anderson, Catherine Benton Cohen, Nina Womagrangel, and Edwina Kirsten for sharing their time and knowledge with us. And thank you for listening. <laughs>